Well, our scripture lesson this evening, as we continue this survey, a quick survey of Ephesians, we come to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. So Ephesians 5, 1 through 21. And as I've said before, if we're doing this a little more slowly in the morning service, I might break this down a, a bit more, but this is a, a, a passage that is, uh, you know, all of the topics here are related, and part of one uh, overarching idea. So we're going to read here again, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, the word of God, as he gave to the apostle Paul, so that uh, Paul would write without error the very word of God as he writes here to the church at Ephesus. So let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's word. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you, With empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. We can bless its reading, its proclamation, and its hearing. As I said, we could easily get many sermons out of this passage, but as uh, my point here in the evening service is just to do a, a more quick overview of Ephesians. You'll recall that in chapter 2, Paul said that Christians once were children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, 
whom he called sons of disobedience. And he uses that term here in this passage as well. He told us that we, those who are in Christ, are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In the first part of chapter 5, he contrasts the behavior of the sons of disobedience with that to which God has called Christians. Among the sons of disobedience, we can see several traits that are common. And you'll notice some parallels here uh, in this passage to what Paul says in Romans 1 about what happens to mankind as we are under sin and our foolish hearts are darkened and we suppress the truth in unrighteousness, what sorts of things we embrace. And Paul here says very similar things. One thing he mentions here is fornication. Uh, could be translated sexual immorality. The word in Greek is uh, porneia. It uh, refers to sexual sin in defiance of God's marital laws. Uh, it's the first element of the word pornography, if you know that word that is so prevalent in our society. It's anything really in opposition of God's love, God's standard of uh, particularly marital love. Related word is the next word, uncleanness or impurity. It's a Greek word that refers to general filthiness, uh, including the filthiness of speech. So whereas the first one uh, is a word also that, that has a, a sense of dirtiness to it uh, in the original Greek, uh, it's talking more about uh, sins against the marital covenant or against marriage as God created it and not saving certain activities and reserving them for the marriage bed. Uh, but this is all kinds of filthiness. It can mean filthiness of speech. It can even mean foolish, ungodly remarks, crude joking. And so it's related to other terms that we see in this uh, passage here where he refers to foolish talking, uh, refers to that kind of language that is laced uh, with obscenities. Uh, that's the hallmark of low intelligence. Uh, you know, uh, so many uh, people who uh, can't seem to, to make a point without cursing at you, uh, those who are intelligent, particularly those who are seeking to be godlike, don't need to do that. Uh, we see related to that the term here, coarse jesting. Sometimes translated also as crude joking. So we often lament the coarsening of American society and American entertainment uh, in uh, more recent decades. Uh, and this is that kind of thing that it's referring to, uh, 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 refers to a, a more refined kind of speech here than uh, the other filthy talk that, that Paul's referred to. But it's, it may be a little more sophisticated in speech, but it's full of uh, sexual innuendos, implied filthiness. Uh, it may seem a little more intelligent than just uh, using a profanity-laced language, uh, but it's just as coarse and crude. Uh, 
think of maybe the jokes of a late night talk show, you know, obscene while still meeting certain standards to be able to use that language on television, you know, that, that kind of thing. A third thing he mentions is covetousness, or could be just translated greed. Uh, a nature obsessed with gratifying desires, often by the accumulation of things, of earthly wealth, uh, but it can also refer to gratifying desires like uh, sort of gluttonous eating, that kind of thing. Paul aptly points out that it's idolatry, that uh, the, someone who is a covetous man is an idolater. Why? Well, obviously, all of these sins can, in some sense, can be seen as an idolatry, right? Because we, we any time that we place these things before God, we're, we're worshiping them instead of Him. Covetousness, in particular, is idolatry because it uh, it is clearly placing things, earthly material wealth, usually above what we ought to be concentrating on. Fourth thing he mentions is deceitfulness. A deceitfulness, especially as the consequence of sin. Of course, all deceitfulness is, is sin. But here he points out in verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So uh, whether it's the unbeliever who outright rejects God's truth or the one who thinks God wants uh, uh, wants us to uh, just wink at sin, or that he winks at sin, as some theologians say, that he says, oh, well, it's not really that big a deal. Remember, every sin is an offense against the infinite creator. Those who teach that God won't judge sin, that a professing believer need not manifest any fruits of repentance in their lives, that's the kind of deceitfulness that Paul is really speaking of here in particular. He then speaks more generally of darkness in verses 8 and 11. He says, for you were once darkness, he says in verse 8 and verse 11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Uh, so darkness there, everything that is contrary to what God has revealed, which is light. Right? That's uh, the way Paul speaks of it in this passage. So willful ignorance that denies the Lord for who he truly is and seeks to hide the truth of our fallen nature. Uh, think of, again, the relation here to Romans chapter 1 where we suppress truth and unrighteousness. So we're, we're trying to put light under a bushel basket, as it were. This darkness is manifest in every false religion. Anything that says that man can earn his own way by his own merits into heaven, and as many have pointed out, uh, in one sense there are only really two religions in the world. Uh, there are all of the false religions that can fall under a category of saying that whatever your goal is, in some religions it may be nothingness or becoming a god yourself or, uh, or just going to heaven, but that you get there by your own works. You follow a system of works. Uh, I'm convinced, by the way, that, uh, that the reason that so many people today think that faith has nothing to do with reason is because all of those faiths, uh, all every false religion in the world, has something unreasonable about it. 
But the true God-revealed religion, there's nothing more reasonable, by the way, than believing that God knows what he's talking about, that when he tells us something, it's true, and, and trusting that. But the God-revealed religion is one that is based on grace. Jesus paid it all. There's nothing that you have to earn to get to heaven. And so there's a darkness manifest in every false religion that says that man can earn his own way by his own merits into heaven. Or anything that denies the true God or that perverts what he has taught, that's darkness. We'll come to the other, to the flip side of this here. We're going over the things that Christians are not. What are the sons of disobedience like? He speaks of being unwise and foolish. Verse 15, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. And then down in verse 17, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Psalm 14 tells us of the fool, and what is it that the fool does? He pretends there is no God. He says in his heart, there is no God. No righteous judge of his actions. God does not see. And then a seventh quality of the sons of disobedience, drunkenness or debauchery, as we see in verse 18, where he says, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation or debauchery. So here Paul not is only condemning drunkenness in general, which is soundly and consistently condemned in Scripture. There is something completely uh, ungodly about uh, losing our inhibitions and control over our behavior. But here Paul not only condemns that drunkenness in general, but especially uh, many Bible scholars think, and I think this is wise considering the, what it's juxtaposed against here, which is being filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's especially probably pointing out the problem that was common in the ancient world, and especially when he's talking, he's writing here to former pagans, Gentile believers in Christ, who are in Ephesus, a place which is a center of pagan worship. By the way, Ephesus had in the city one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which is a temple to Artemis, who was a goddess of fertility, and, and at least her role as, uh, as she uh, was worshipped in, uh, in Ephesus there, mainly as a fertility goddess. Uh, and other aspects of Artemis in various parts of pagan religion had her as a, a virgin goddess, but this was more her, her mother goddess. It's a, it's a weird uh, thing that we don't have time to go into, about how Artemis had various aspects to her personality and manifestations. And Here she was manifest as a mother goddess worshipped in that sense. It was a place where people engaged uh, at times in various kinds of uh, uh, drunkenness or uh, using mind-altering drugs to have a supposed ex- uh, spiritual experience. You will even hear people in our own day, uh, you know, they'll take trips to South America or someplace to take ayahuasca or uh, psilocybin, they'll use you know, the so-called magic mushroom, and claim that they have spiritual experiences when they're doing this. 
Well, that's a false spiritual experience. And if they are contacted by spirits when they were doing this, it is interesting if you read about some of the experiences people have under the influence of these drugs, and they weirdly seem very similar to one another. And also seem an awful lot like what we see in history and in the Bible of people's contact with lying spirits who are trying to mislead them spiritually speaking. So if there is anything spiritual about these things, they are in contact with demonic spirits and are being fooled by them. But we can see how the lives of so many who deny God's truth are taken over by alcohol and drugs and not uh, not just when they're trying to have spiritual experiences, but often when they're trying to uh, use these substances to um, to cover up their own problems or to deaden themselves to them. Sort of self-medication. Together with the other things he's mentioned, sexual immorality, filthy, coarse speech, covetousness, deceitfulness, general foolishness, uh, these are the characteristics of the lives of so many who are without Christ. And not everyone who is a son of disobedience has every one of these qualities, but these are general and common qualities that are often found among the sons of disobedience. Christians can easily be tempted to engage in what fallen society around them considers normal behavior and considers most of these things normal. And if it weren't a fact that Christians could stumble into these things, Paul would have no need to write this chapter. So we have to be warned ourselves as we look at these things and see what is it that I am tempted to do. You may not be tempted to drunkenness. You may be tempted to something else here. Or maybe drunkenness is your big temptation. Who knows which one of these sins, but each one of us is prone to something. And so here Paul is saying, be careful not to engage in these things, particularly when there is social pressure around you where everything has normalized this. But as those who are united to Christ, we are not counted as sons of disobedience or children of wrath, but we are considered children of God. What would the opposite of a son of disobedience be? A son of obedience. Right? So that would mean that we should have a propensity by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us to be obedient to God. And this is where, uh, though our, in our justification, there is no cooperation of anything within us. We don't bring any merits before God to say, look at how good I am, therefore count me righteous. God simply counts us righteous by his grace. Uh, here in sanctification, we can't do it without God's power at work within us. But at the same time, this is where we cooperate, where we make decisions to do things that are consistent with God's revealed will. So Paul tells us some things that we need to do in this passage. And he tells us, first of all, imitate your heavenly Father, in verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Children learn, and I'm getting this lesson firsthand these days, little children learn how to behave by imitating. They learn how to speak by imitating things back to you. Uh, I can tell you uh, not too long ago um, when we were we used to feed the girls bottles they still usually take a bottle right before bed 
uh, often do. And we were we were feeding them some months back when they were quite a bit smaller. It's amazing how fast they grow. We were giving them their evening bottle, and we would often turn on uh, something on the television that we would watch while we were while we were feeding the babies, and we were watching an action film. And we hadn't finished it the night before, and we thought, well, let's just go ahead and finish it here while we're feeding. The, only a 15 minutes left of it. It's the climactic uh, part of a action film, which means that there was a lot of fist fighting going on. Well, about two minutes into watching this, uh, we had to turn it off and watch something else. We finished that one later after the girls were in bed because Serenity started punching the air in front of her. She was imitating that behavior, and she punched me in the face the next day <laughs> when she didn't want to go down for a nap. I'm going to try to be, by the way, uh, I'm going to limit in the future how often I use my children as, as uh, sermon illustrations. I don't want to embarrass them. But, uh, but this, uh, this is something that's apt See here, we children imitate things. And here, Paul says, be imitators of God as dear children. Uh, the primary source that children get the things they imitate from is their parents. So therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. So we need to look to God. This is the purpose of sanctification. God the Holy Spirit works in us to make us more like him. To make us more like God. And if we want to see God in human flesh, we look to Jesus. And so we say commonly that we want to be more like Jesus. As children who love their father will look to him and try to be like him. As children who love their mother will look to their mother and try to be like her. Uh, we're to look to God as our heavenly father. And try to be like him, particularly in his righteousness, his holiness, and also his forgiveness. Jesus gives us that example, doesn't he? He tells us how, uh, in several parables, he gives us examples of poor servants who uh, have been forgiven a great debt and then go out and refuse to forgive a small debt to them. We should be like God in that regard and be ready to forgive Another thing we see is he tells us, follow the example of Christ's self-sacrificial love. We find that in verse 2. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. That verse, by the way, itself could be a sermon talking about Christ's sacrifice. But the advice here, the main point Paul's making in giving the example of Christ who gave us gave himself as an offering for us, as a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma, is that he was so self-sacrificial, so ought we to be. In fact, the, the most common word used for love, the love that Christians are to have for one another, the love that Christ has had for us in the New Testament Greek is agape, or agape, as many people pronounce it. And that word uh, is a uh, word that means essentially self-sacrificial love, self-giving love. The Lord Jesus is the greatest example of this because he laid down his life voluntarily for lost sinners who otherwise would have hated him. While we were his enemies and sinners, he nevertheless died for us. And he became the ultimate sacrifice in our place. 
So we likewise should be ready to give up ourselves for others, putting uh, our uh, personal desires aside for the good of others. The third quality of being a child of God, being the opposite of a son of disobedience, is to be moral and pure in our sexuality, in our speech, in our desires. Not giving in to illicit physical desires, engaging in filthy or crude speech, or committing the idolatry of greed and covetousness. Those all kind of go together in one uh, round uh, set of behaviors. Our speech, rather, should communicate our gratitude to God. So we note all these things are considered opposite of the giving thanks at the end of verse 4. As we read through verses 3 through 5, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. Saints, those who are holy, those who are sanctified, those who are set apart. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. God wants us to reflect his character so much that immorality is not even named among us. And I think it's it's fitting there and appropriate that the opposite behavior to all of these things collectively is thanksgiving. Not a coincidence that the Heidelberg Catechism uh, places its section uh, where it's talking about uh, how Christians are to behave in light of what we know about God and about our own nature and about salvation, that section on how Christians are to behave is titled thankfulness or gratitude. It's not to say that we must never discuss immorality. He says here, he wants us to reflect his character so much that immorality is not even named among us. It's, that's not to say that we can't discuss it. If, if we couldn't do that, we would be violating that law right here and now. Paul would be violating it as he writes about these things. But rather, God calls us to such a purity of life that no one could ever credibly accuse Christians of doing these things, that it couldn't be named among us in that sense. And sadly, we fail God in these things. And all too often, the world can credibly accuse Christians of not practicing what we preach. But Paul's saying here we, we must work hard not to do these things that, and to live a life of gratitude to God. So that's where continued repentance and forgiveness come in. But we must not be content to be sinners. We should strive to be pure as God is pure. As in Habakkuk, he says that he has eyes too pure to look upon sin. No one who is immoral or impure or covetous, which is idolatry, can enter God's kingdom. Uh, we can I'll be grateful for what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? It's parallel to what he's saying here. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, that's uh, people who spend their life in meaningless partying, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. If he had made the list longer, he would have been able to say, such were all of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name 
of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We've been washed. We've been sanctified, set apart. We've been justified, counted righteous because of Christ. Though we may have done these things, they are out of place now among God's people. Christ has atoned for our sins. We must not dishonor Him by engaging wantonly in them. Fourth quality of those who are children of light, as Paul calls them here, is that Christians must not be deceived concerning sin. As we read in verse 6 earlier, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. No Christian in this present life will be sinless. But we must not offer assurance where there is none, telling people, yeah, if you live in a completely sinful lifestyle, God's okay with that anyway. Christ said if we belong to him, we will obey him. John 15, 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Those in Christ must not act like sons of disobedience. We must instead, number five, walk as children of light. In verses 7 through 9, Therefore do not be partakers with them, that is with the sons of disobedience. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Notice that Paul doesn't say we were just in darkness. We were darkness. He's talking about our spiritual state here when we were not yet forgiven. Now, now we're not just in light, but by virtue of our union with Christ, who is the light of the world, we are light. We are not dark, void of truth, absent of virtue. We are children of light. So we are to walk and behave as such, bearing fruit of light, shining God's light through our words and through our deeds into this darkened world. We should give one bit of caution here, and that is to point out that many of the false religions I mentioned earlier in general uh, speak of being in the light as well. For that matter, as, uh, as I've studied a bit of the history of the occult in the past, I can tell you that even many Satanists uh, will say they are in the light because, of course, he is Lucifer, the light bearer. <laughs> They'll claim that he's the Lord of light. And, of course, as the serpent who brought knowledge, they would say, to mankind and freed us from this slavery as they saw it. He's the light bringer. So just because somebody talks about light doesn't mean that they're really in the light. But here we know the real light is Christ and we're to be in that light, we're to reflect that light, we are children of light, and so we're to live as such. That is what we are to do, be morally excellent in heart, uh, righteous in action, truthful in our words. In order to do so, we, number six, have to strive to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, as he says in verse 10, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. So this, it isn't like as soon as we become Christians, knowledge of how to obey God just drops into our heads. We have to look to his word and learn it. Paul's speaking here about testing the things that we encounter in the world against God's revealed will in Scripture. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Day by day we're faced with decisions. 
God's word may not necessarily tell us what is best in a particular situation. Uh, Anything forbidden must not be done, uh, but there are things that are permitted uh, that need to be weighed wisely. God's word tells me to take care with the money that he's given me. Be wise and also be generous. So maybe I would buy a less expensive car and that would allow me to be more generous with other funds. But on the other hand, what if my ministry requires me to spend long hours on the road? I've had to spend more hours on the road since I came into the RPCNA than I did before that. Uh, having a uh, Paying for a reliable and comfortable car might go a long way to helping out with that. Neither one of those is wrong. So I weigh those things wisely. I have to think carefully and prayerfully to discern what is best and pleasing to God. But I must, first and foremost, look at what is acceptable to the Lord in in His Word and live by that. A seventh quality of being the children of light, of being not the sons of disobedience, we should expose the works of darkness. Light exposes what is in the darkness. We see in verses 11 through 14, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. So in other words, when you make something dark manifest, you're being light, Paul says. Therefore, he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. We must... Take no part in darkness, anything displeasing to God. Rather, we should expose those things which are displeasing to God. Not in the sense of you know tabloid-style gossip. We don't go, hey, talking to each other, hey, you know what so-and-so did? But rather, we should expose what is wrong. In the sense of naming them for what they are. When we see those things which are evil around us, we can point out they are evil. They are satanic. Some things are so despicable as to be inappropriate for open discussion. Paul seems to imply that here. They should be spoken of, but spoken with care. And still truthfully. In order to oppose them. Don't speak of them to titillate or to gossip, but only to point them out as shameful. Paul modifies Isaiah 60 verse 1 to point out that Christ shines through those who oppose evil and love good. An eighth quality is that Christians are to walk wisely. In verses 15 through 17, see that you walk circumspectly. It's a pretty good translation of the term there. Uh, to be circumspect uh, literally means to, to look around. And so uh, literally a, a, an image of this, of being circumspect, might be the the lumberjack who walks around the tree and inspects it from top to bottom as carefully as he can before deciding where he's going to cut to know where it's going to land. Or the man who walks around the car and kicks the tires you know, and checks out every aspect of it before he decides whether it's worth purchasing or not. That's being circumspect. So let so see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. There's another one. It could be a whole sermon just on how do you redeem time. But making sure that you're using your time in a way that's godly. Because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
Notice wisdom involves understanding God's revealed will, knowing scripture is necessary to walk wisely. This isn't about being smart as the world counts such things. No problem with being smart, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. Being wise in our application of God's truth. Living by what we know pleases God. And another quality, ninth quality, is that Christians, rather than being filled with wine and being drunk and dissipated, being debauched, are filled with the Holy Spirit, as we see in verse 18. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So how do we show that we're filled with the Spirit? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So uh, really three sections there. Notice being spirit-filled is not about a subjective experience, but it's about things like public worship, which we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I've preached on this before, so suffice to say that words here for psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are terms that refer to the 150 psalms of the Bible. In fact, I would argue that the construction of the Greek there is telling us to sing, uh, to limit our singing to those things and not to sing other things. And the term making melody is the word for playing musical instruments to accompany psalm singing. It's psalantes is the, the Greek word there, and it's related to the word for psalm. And notice that we're not commanded to make melody with organs and guitars and pianos and whatever else, but in our hearts. So appropriate New Testament worship involves singing psalms, a cappella, but clearly the point is here that we be worshiping rightly. And that worship is how that we show that we are filled with the Spirit. We also show that we are Spirit-filled by thanksgiving to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. And lastly, by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Again, putting the needs and desires of other Christians ahead of our own, uh, being duly submissive to the courts of the church, all of these things are appropriate. So in other words, having good public worship and a well-ordered church Sounds boring to the world, but that's actually how you have or how you show that you are spirit-filled. Not by uh, wild, uh, ecstatic acts uh, where people have these almost chaotic worship services, so-called. But by having well-ordered worship and church life. The point of all this is that we are not to behave as children of Satan, but as children of God. Notice the sons of disobedience are quite different than the sons of obedience. So we're not to be sons of disobedience, but of of obedience. Not as children of darkness, but as children of light. And may we then, therefore, do these things that we show the light of Christ to the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are our Father in Christ, and that we are your children by adoption. Help us to live as such that we may shine your light into this world and show that we indeed do reflect the nature of our Heavenly Father through Christ Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.